Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. This week, we're re-examining the big stories of 2020. So much has happened on the world stage, in politics and the economy. But underneath it all, there's only really been one story in town. Chinese health authorities are still working to identify the virus behind a pneumonia outbreak in the central city of Wuhan. And on Thursday, Chinese researchers said investigations showed a new type of coronavirus was to blame. And now, with a new mutation raising more questions about the virus, we speak to The Times science editor, Tom Whipple, who spent all year doing his utmost to dispel misinformation. If I'm the science correspondent, I am the reality correspondent. That is what science is, and we just abandoned reality. We separate the science from the conspiracy theories. We've had a very strange year. It had always been this continual sort of whack-a-mole of bullshit. What have we actually learnt about the virus? And is there now light at the end of the tunnel? What can we expect in 2021? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, 2020. Lessons from a global pandemic. Ministers revealed that a new variant of the virus has been seen in the UK. Ministers said a new variant of coronavirus is out of control. The UK is reporting a new strain of the virus. Is this something we should be concerned about? Dr. Anthony Fauci believes the new strain of the coronavirus is tearing through Great Britain, most likely is already in the US. I'm Tom Whipple and I'm the science editor at The Times. So, Tom, today we're looking back at what has been an extraordinary year for science. But before we do, what everyone wants to know is, what should we be making of this new mutant strain of the virus? How worried should we be and and what, what do we know about it? We now have a fairly good idea about the story of this mutation and how it came about. So, on September the 20th, our genomic screening programme picked up a new variant of the coronavirus. To be clear, this is a very, very common event. 
the UK government has been criticised for not alerting the world at that point. Well, no one was alerted at that point. It was just another entry on a spreadsheet that no one looked at. Then the second lockdown happened, and in Kent and Medway, which were already high, it started going in the wrong direction. Public Health England was looking at its sort of dashboard of the country, and by about November the 20th, they could see that everywhere the lockdown was working, essentially except for Kent and Medway, it was going in the wrong direction, which was extremely puzzling. So they started to investigate and they sent in some teams to see if people were behaving differently. Was there any obvious reason they could think of why this particular region seemed to be bucking the national trend? And they couldn't find one. And that's despite being completely locked down. Yeah, this was the measure that we knew should bring things down and it wasn't. Then on December the 6th, they sent in the genetics team to have a look at it, essentially as a last resort, because they just couldn't understand what was going on. And the genetics team noticed the rise of this particular variant that was around on September the 20th. If you treat it as a different virus, imagine it's a completely different virus. So the old virus had an R of 0.8. I'm sure we're all familiar with R, but just for people who aren't, an R of 0.8 means if 10 of you have the virus, those 10 passed on to eight people. So the, the pandemic declines. If you just took out this variant, it had an R during the lockdown of 1.2, which means that 10 people would infect 12, which means that it keeps on going up. So it seemed to be significantly more transmissible. Now, I should say, since, since the start of the pandemic, as science editor, I've had periodic sort of queries from our news desk saying, a mutant virus has been found, and it's a very scary word. And each time I've said, well, It's all 2020 you know. needed. <laughs> mutant <laughs> but, virus on top of the other one. Well, but exactly. Mutant virus sounds bad. Mutant virus is virus. All viruses mutate. This is not a priori a concern, except sometimes the mutations have an effect. And that seems... I mean, it seems with tentative but growing evidence to be the case with this one. It seems to be about maybe 50% better at transmitting itself. We'll probably know more information by the time this episode goes out. It's really bad news. In the spring, we would have just managed to stay below an R of one. It means that we have to go into a very hard lockdown to stop it. And do we know how it's come about? We don't. The September the 20th samples were not patient zero. Um, they, they found a few different people and it implied there was a single point source of it, but we don't know who. We know that it's more infectious, which is obviously alarming. There's been talk and it all seems sort of slightly unsubstantiated at the moment, but do we know, is it more dangerous for children? What we know about this is very hazy. That is our fate with the pandemic. You can wait for perfect information and act, but by then it's too late. There is a reasonably high certainty that it is indeed a lot more transmissible. It may be because one of the reasons why it's more transmissible is it may be better at infecting children, slightly older children. That doesn't mean it's dangerous to them. When children get infected, they're very unlikely to have a serious course of the disease. That hasn't changed. It just seems to be better at doing the infecting. So, Tom, take me back to the start of the year and the moment you realised that coronavirus was with us. And this might just be changing our lives for a while. So, well, initially, here's my confession, I didn't. Before Covid, pandemics were just one of a long list of possible risks to the country. Just another item on the government risk register, along with terrorist attacks, 
floods and solar flares knocking out the electrical grid. So I've been covering science for 10 years, and the thing about science is you periodically get told that the apocalypse is coming. I've been writing about potential pandemics all of the time that I've been at the Times, and we've seen potential pandemics come and go. We've had swine flu, we've had SARS-1, the prequel, Zika and Ebola. So the first I heard about it was maybe sort of early January it registered, and then the number of articles doubled with a doubling cycle of about once every four days, much like the virus. But, you know, it it bubbled in the background. It wasn't, as as I say, we used to false alarms. We covered it. I think we covered it responsibly. Looking back at mid-February, I looked back at articles I'd written. There are many commenters saying the Times is sensationalising this. We're taking it too seriously, which I guess would take as proof that we were doing it about right. That was probably roughly when we first recorded... Uh, a pilot episode with you. And I feel really bad to throw this at you, but here's a little clip of your predictions back then. This is what it looks like at the beginning of a pandemic. But that doesn't mean that this is a pandemic. We know that this is how they start, and we know that these things are very bad. So that is the case for panic. In fact, most virologists would bet that this will not go on to be some sort of terrible pandemic. The chances are this will blow over and we won't be talking about this again in a year. The scientists aren't crying wolf. They've got a glimpse of a wolf, and this is all they would expect to see of a wolf at this time in a wolf attack. But what they cannot say is whether that wolf is actually lunging towards us with its fangs bared or whether it's a a border collie and it's fine. Well, well done me. I love the prediction that we wouldn't be talking about it in a year. <laughs> um, yeah, well, look, I, I gave you a choice between a wolf or a border collie and an uh, unmatched <laughs> analogy that the, the, the metaphor that I've, I've thankfully forgotten about until now. And it turns out that the teeth were bad. I mean, to be fair, that takes in a lot of the spectrum, <laughs> yes. But sadly, almost a year later, and we are very much still talking about it. So at what point did you realise this was more on the wolf rather than the border collie scale of things? I think I I remember a little bit after recording that, I met a very distinguished scientist, a Nobel laureate, and and said to him, basically said, are we over-egging this? Because I knew how much we were writing about it. And he said that he was stockpiling corned beef and had a house with a moat. And that's when I sort of thought, right, okay. There have now been 132 deaths, close to 6,000 cases, and 16 countries outside China have confirmed cases. The virus is quickly spreading across the globe. And then, very shortly after that, February became March, and it was clear that this was a news story unlike any other. I suppose, and, and you know, to be entirely fair to you as a, a science reporter, we should really reflect on the fact that back then, back in February and March, It seemed like there was a lot of debate within the scientific community, too, about just how serious this was. There wasn't that much debate about how serious it was. There was about what we should do to it. We've had a very strange year, and I think we need to reflect just how strange it is. We've now become accustomed to this idea that you can just shut down a society. 
And the idea that we could do that, leaving aside the arguments about whether it's right or wrong, it just wasn't considered back in January. It wasn't in the planning. You know, if you want to look at the, the on the lockdown spectrum at the most extreme sort of proponents of it, the ones who say, look, we should get to zero COVID, we should have big lockdowns, we should have locked down faster, harder, longer. If you look at Independent Sage, well, that's led by David King, who freely admits, you know, when he prepared the UK government pandemic plan back in 2006, it didn't consider lockdown. No one considered these things. They were insane. And we've almost forgotten just how unthinkable what we've done this year really was. I mean, talk me through some of the discussions that you were hearing within the scientific community back then, because I mean, I remember at the start, there may not have been the big debate over the seriousness of COVID, but there was a debate about how many people were likely to get it and how many might have already got it. There were sort of competing models of how it would spread across the population. Yes, there was. So if we think back to, I think, mid-March, so just about when we were going into lockdown, so there were two models that made it into public consciousness. One was this famous Imperial College model. We were on course for a catastrophic epidemic. Computer models showed the impact on critical care units. Which said that if we hadn't gone into lockdown, it predicted 260,000 deaths if we just continued as we were on the 10th of March. The country is in lockdown and we're making huge personal sacrifices in our everyday activities. Then there was another one that popped up, which was extremely intriguing, from a team at Oxford. Oxford University scientists believe two-thirds of us may already have had the virus, perhaps without symptoms, and are therefore immune. So how do they work this out? So modelling is a really inexact process. The imperial team had started from the bottom up. They had said, we know it spreads... In this way, we know it spreads to this many people. The reproduction rate is this. You know, this is how long you incubate it. All of these things. They put all these things into their model. It had churned through and said, it'll do this. What the Oxford team had done is they'd looked at what had actually happened and sort of reverse engineered it. They said, to explain these curves, what should the disease have been doing? And what they concluded is it had already spread through everyone. Now, their math suggests that on the 19th of March, more than 45 million people will have had the infection. But those advising the government are treating the report with caution. Um, so there was this weird period at the beginning of March where the Oxford team were, were predicting that basically no one else was going to die. Mm. Um, now, the strange thing is that Neil Ferguson has had a lot of criticism. Neil Ferguson and his hopelessly wrong and useless model. Professor Neil Ferguson. Professor Lockdown, he was called the man that got us into these draconian measures in the first place as a result of his, I would say, quite dodgy scientific modelling. He predicted, once we went into lockdown, that we'd probably get around 20,000 deaths. So he actually underestimated the spread of the pandemic, according to his model. And his model was seen as alarmist at the time. It was. And, you know, it'll never be proved the counterfactual, what would have happened if we hadn't gone into lockdown. Quite apart from anything else, even if we hadn't, we would have changed our behaviour quite significantly. Although we can look at the city of Manaus in Brazil, where they, in inverted commas, let it rip. And there, 75% of the population were infected. Local authorities say the funeral system is collapsing and the city is running out of coffins. The dead are being buried in collective graves like this one to the great distress of their families. They had a death rate which would be equivalent in the UK to 210,000. Wow. And bear in mind that they are a far younger population. But he's the one who's taken the criticism. And, and oddly, the Oxford team has, well, they were led by a woman called Sunitra Gupta who has, has built a media career 
Professor Gupta, to you first. Uh, you sparked quite a reaction in the scientific community when you wrote this letter. What exactly is the argument there? The argument there is that the best way we can protect lives is by allowing the infection to spread among those who are not vulnerable. She's very good academic, but that was spectacularly, catastrophically, unambiguously wrong. It's intriguing because we've, you know, the Insight team on the Sunday Times have recently revealed that she was called in to consult with the government to work out whether we should have a second lockdown in September. But by then, surely everybody knew her model had been, as you say, disastrously wrong. Then she had moved on to this Great Barrington idea that we were maybe close to herd immunity and just needed to shield the elderly for a bit until we got it, but we hadn't quite reached herd immunity. So yes, the first iteration was as wrong as it is possible to be. So this is my question today. Why do our decision makers and much of the media continue to find excuses to ignore Sweden's success? Ten different regions in Sweden have now imposed local new recommendations. They fear that they have lost control of the spread of the virus. We've reached 6,000 deaths. The government is really concerned about what is happening in the country. You've talked about the different stances within the scientific community and the example of Menaus, where you could actually see some of this playing out. The other place, I suppose, which has been held up all year by entirely different factions of society as a prime example is Sweden. Tell us about their big experiment and how we can judge it now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, <laughs> in one answer, if you can. <laughs> so Sweden is the world's, um, the Rorschach test. You know, you see in it what you want. And that's been how it's been from the beginning. So let me, let me make the two cases as strongly and as forcefully as I can. Let's imagine we're having this discussion in September or October. Sweden did not lock down. The models of the kind used by Neil Ferguson were pretty clear about what would happen in Sweden. There would be bodies in the streets, the health service would break down. Yet Sweden said, you know what, we had a pandemic plan, like the rest of Europe had a pandemic plan, where we're going to be different is we're going to stick with it. It's not that we're going our own way, it's that everyone else has bottled it and is going their own way. Unlike the stop-start confusion of Britain, we're going to be clear from the beginning about what we're going to do. It's going to be an understandable policy that people won't get tired of, and we're going to try to keep society going within that. And that's what they did. And they had, had nothing like the, the deaths that were predicted. And they got on with their lives. Now, let me make the counter case. And there you can look at the surrounding Scandinavian countries where they had a tenth as many deaths. They appeared to have no greater hit to their economies. And th they seem to have been successful. The other issue is that Sweden, on its own terms even leaving that aside, has been unsuccessful because it was following the plan that you would get the pandemic over with in the summer. Now, that didn't happen. And that almost perfectly ties in the sense to why we didn't see the bodies in the streets. The reason it didn't happen was because people didn't let the infection run riot. You know, people did change their their behaviour. And so they haven't got the pandemic over with. And so what you're seeing there is a resurgence of the pandemic in the autumn. And things are currently looking relatively bad for them, but we won't know. We won't be able to adjudicate this debate until 
you know, a year or so. But for, for now, it, it's very much you can you can draw the the data you wish to do. And if you're a libertarian, then you can decide that Sweden's got the balance right. And if you're more at the David King side of things, then you can very much say, look, they've gained none of the economic benefits that you'd think, and they've had massively high death rate. Although it is worth adding a caveat at this side, massively high death rate like Britain, which did lock down. And as, as somebody who at least has a mathematical background, has it been frustrating watching politicians, quite often the journalists who are asking questions at press conferences, just being so completely out of their depth? A lot of this is politics. And there's a lot of legitimate questions that need to be asked within this. The one thing I guess I would say about the debate that we've had in this country, and this is not so much speaking from a scientific perspective, is it's been very parochial. There's been times when we've just been arguing about what's going on in Britain and not noticing what's happening in Europe. One of the most fascinating things is it's barely entered our discourse what's been going on in Southeast Asia and East Asia. You know, we like to debate the German model versus the Swedish model. But what about the Vietnamese model, the Taiwanese model? Uh, We've debated a bit of the New Zealand model, but then I guess people in New Zealand are a bit like us. But actually, their model is a lot closer to what's going on in East Asia, Southeast Asia. I think there's a lot more to be learned than just looking at what we call the West. It's interesting because that ability to pick and choose which version of the science you want to, to, to read, has that sort of played out across the political piece too? The, go- the government all the way through have said that they followed the science, but have they been able effectively to choose which version? To an extent. I mean, the idea, obviously, that there is the science is is nonsense. That's not how scientific communities work, particularly with a virus that we didn't know existed this time last year. It's been interesting seeing how the public discourse has been poisoned to an extent by the selective and willfully selective use of data. Tell me about that, because it did seem like overnight we became a country of epidemiologists, certainly on Twitter. How has that been for you as somebody who has a grounding in in science? It's been weird. I suppose the interesting thing is I'm not an expert and my job is to speak to experts and distill what they say. Over the summer, there was this counter-narrative that the pandemic was over. It was started by various assortments of libertarians, climate change sceptics, slightly usual suspects. And then this, it's been a fascinating psychological exercise because this has led to, you know, once the pandemic manifestly was not over, that led to either admission that you were wrong or a doubling, a trebling, a quadrupling down. And so what's happened is, This very strange narrative that I call them the PCR truthers, people who didn't know what a polymerase chain reaction was, maybe not even what PCR stands for now, would explain how they were using too many cycles and they were producing too many false positives. And thus, there was an inverted commas case-demic where we were picking up cases but not infections. And I kept on thinking, oh, okay, right, when the hospitalizations rise, they'll accept they're wrong. When the deaths come, they'll accept they're wrong. When the excess deaths come, oh, that'll be the point where they admit they're wrong. And of course, as anyone who had studied conspiracy theories would have told me, there will not be a point when they admit they're wrong. What extent is there a possibility that it is the exponential increase in testing itself in identifying genuine new cases and the very significant possibility of false positives 
that is giving a distorted impression of the trajectory of the disease. Well, uh, I, um, I, I, I like my right honourable friend very much, uh, and I, I, I wish it were true. This is two plus two equals five. This is that bad, yet it has persisted. It is there all the time, poisoning the discourse. And that's fascinating. I mean, it's look, someone will do some lovely PhDs on it. For now, I just, <laughs> I find it mesmerising and I try to be zen. Yeah, there have been times when you've been a little less zen. I know there was there was a piece that you never quite published. <laughs> <laughs> the inverted commas, hailstone of bollocks piece. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that one. <laughs> If I'm the science correspondent, I am the reality correspondent. And we just abandoned reality. We were arguing about whether there was a pandemic. We were arguing about people dying with COVID, not of COVID. We argued about whether 30% of us had T-cell immunity thanks to the common cold. And the appalled author of that study had to make a statement saying that his research had been misrepresented. We argued about whether we had reached herd immunity. We had never had an adult debate. It had always been this continual whack-a-mole of just bullshit. A senior government scientist had told me that people are dead because of this. And, and he is correct. People are dead. If you spread misinformation in a pandemic, whether that's because you knowingly do it or because you're a contrarian who just doesn't realise how far out of your depth you are, then people die. That's what happens. We see no apology. You just move on. The carnival of nonsense just continues. We'll have more from the science editor, Tom Whipple, in just a moment. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. So whilst all this misinformation is flying around and people are still debating whether we've all had it or whether there's more of the virus to come. In the meantime, there are moments of hope. I mean, when did it become clear to you that things were moving on the vaccine side? So there's several points that were really interesting. So the fact that it was days, they managed to get the actual vaccines that we now are about to put into people's arms in days from the publication of this first genome sequence. That is something that just could not be done five years ago at all. 
they got these new platforms that were ready to go. So rather than spending years developing a vaccine, all they needed was the genetic material, slot it in, off you go. So, so that genome was actually, that, that was published back in January. January the 11th, I think. Brilliant Chinese scientists got it out. It, it took months to get the SARS genome out, but we've had a revolution in genomics. And as soon as they did that, because of the parallel revolution in vaccines, they were able to make them. So that's that's the first answer to those who say that this has been done too fast. Literally, they just had them ready to go. And then what happened after that was this logistics exercise in getting through phase one, two, three, and animal testing. And there were points in that that we thought, oh, this is going all right. You know, they got through phase two, Fast, and that's we, we saw that GlaxoSmithKline did not get through phase two, so you can fall down there. So that's good, but you asked me when was I confident this was working? I asked because when we recorded our very first episode of this podcast that was broadcast, you pointed out that vaccines take normally about 10 years, and you thought at the very fastest we might get one, which would probably be available by about winter 2022. So <laughs> This now seems extraordinary. So when did you realise that this was all happening at double speed? It was clear over the summer that they were into phase three trials fast enough that they were going to get a readout pretty fast. But when did I think it would be good? The scientists themselves had no idea if these things were going to work. The astonishing drama. It's not often that drama is mediated by p-values and statistics, but it literally you open up the data and you have a look, and from that you suddenly know that it works or that it doesn't work. And until the, that point, nobody in the world knows. And do we think the vaccine will still work on this strain? Everyone I've spoken to is very confident the vaccine will still work, but isn't taking it for granted. A virologist is a good analogy. You know, if your mum got a scar on her left cheek, you'd still see she was your mum. And that's sort of what this has got. But if it does change, then, you know, it might feasibly lower the efficacy of the vaccine slightly. It might be worth them tweaking the vaccine, which they can do, and probably without that much hassle. But this is all to come. So I, I know you'll hate being put on the spot with this and with another prediction, but... When can we expect life to return to something like normal? <laughs> I, I'm all right. Okay, I, I'm going to get a, a reasonable level of confidence behind this. As soon as those first warm days of spring come, we will have vaccinated a large proportion of the vulnerable population. So I think from spring, we will not be remotely back to normal, but it'll feel a lot more like normal because of what we've been in until now. Over the summer, I think things could well feel almost completely normal. And depending on what we find out about how the vaccine works to stop transmission, that could be the end of it. I think there'll still be residual stuff going into winter 2022, but I'm relatively confident about the light at the end of the tunnel now. Does this new mutation change sort of your prognosis for the year to come? It does. It does. If this is, and I'm, I'm keeping the if, and I'm very much hoping that this is wrong, but if this is as transmissible as they say, it's very hard to see how we can really keep it under control over winter. It may be that we have a dropping in cases over Christmas because people aren't going to work, they're not going to school, and also because in the rest of the country it's the old strain. But let's presume that what we think about it is true. 
in which case we would then expect this strain to replace the old strain and in every place where it replaces it to start growing, even in the sort of lockdown that we saw in November in England, I mean, even in a stricter version of that lockdown. And if that's the case, then really we are in a race. We need to get as many vaccinations into people's arms as we conceivably can. And frankly, that was that was the grand national objective anyway before, but it, it, it's really taken on a, a new seriousness. Having lived through this, what do you think has sort of changed forever? You know, whether it's the way we work or are masks with us for the foreseeable? So... Is, is COVID with us for the foreseeable? So COVID is with us for the foreseeable. It's going to be knocking around. We're not going to eradicate it. I'd imagine that we'll probably end up in the situation where a lot of people will have annual boosters like they have flu shots. There'll be some treatments to deal with it. It'll be a burden to the NHS. It's going to fall back into background noise, I think. One of the things that I think is positive about this is this is, I feel, as mild as it is possible for a pandemic to be such that we would notice it. I don't say that to diminish or minimise what's happened, but it could have had a far higher fatality rate. It would have been you know, entirely possible that it could have a high fatality rate amongst children. I think this is a warning for the world to get ourselves together, to get ourselves sorted, to look at pandemic preparedness, because it's quite apparent now that it's a false economy not to be prepared. But I think this is a wake-up call that the world needed because scientists have been warning for such a long time this is going to happen, and it could have been so much worse. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Times science editor, Tom Whipple. You can keep up with all of Tom's reporting and analysis at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If you can, please do leave us a review. We read them all. And if you'd like to get in touch with any thoughts on what you've just heard or any ideas for stories that you'd like us to cover in the future, then please do email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 